Dear Father, thank you for the joy in the room tonight, Father. Thank you for the hearts that have gathered here tonight in your name, who know you by faith, called according to your will, and made disciples, children of God by faith, and disciples in Christ. And when we're in a room, Father, filled with those who know the Lord like we do and care to follow him in his word as we do, it just feels different. It just feels different. And we're thankful for that difference. And Father, uh, you've blessed us with this. Not everyone in the world who knows you is able to study as we are, though we all wish we could. And in your providence, Father, you've appointed for some to, to have opportunities like this and perhaps not others for a time. So, Father, knowing that, to whom much is given, much is required. And we ask, Lord, that in what you've given us and what will give us tonight, you will impress upon our hearts how we put it to work for the, for the sake of your glory, changing our lives according to what the Word calls us to do, changing our outlook and our purpose in life according to what it calls us to do. Father, doing all that we need to to align ourselves with it in order to please you. Show us that tonight, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends, tonight we're moving into chapter 12 of Matthew. And I've alluded to this chapter or referred to this chapter now for some time. If you've been with us for a while, you know we've been looking at the coming of chapter 12. And for most people uh, who've studied the Gospels, it probably isn't a number that means much to them. They're probably more focused, for example, on some of the later chapters where you see Jesus crucified and so on. Certainly those are very important too. But there's something especially important about chapter 12. It's the pivotal moment in the Gospel of Matthew. And as we get through the whole of it, you'll see why. I'm not going to get there tonight. That's something that's coming. But I wanted you to know we're starting now on a chapter of Scripture that's very, very important to our understanding of why Jesus came, what he did, and why he left. Now, as we get into this chapter, we're also transitioning out of a study in last chapter, chapter 11, on the reasons of Jesus' rejection. Last time we studied in chapter 11, we saw the first of two major reasons that Matthew gives us for why Jesus was ultimately rejected by, by Israel, why he ended up dying on a cross. That was chapter 11. Chapter 11 gave us the first reason, which was the hard hearts of the people of Israel. They preferred a system that they knew well, a system that was common to them, a system of rules and ritual. They preferred all of that to a plain, ordinary Jewish carpenter who claimed to have a kingdom to offer them. And they sized up Jesus and they looked at their religious leaders and they said, no, we'll stick with what we've got. That was reason number one. But there's a second reason for why Jesus was rejected. And this reason works hand in hand with the first. And that second reason rested on the shoulders of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. The men who ruled the religious world of Israel in Jesus' day set themselves against Jesus because he denied their authority and he denied their system of rules and regulations. And in particular, and this is really the core reason, the second major reason, Jesus disregarded the Pharisees' extensive system of Sabbath day rules. The Sabbath itself becomes a key factor in Jesus' rejection. And as I explained at the end of chapter 11 when we were last studying, I said that the Pharisees in Jesus' day had created more rules for how a Jew was to keep the Sabbath day than in any other area of Jewish life. By some counts, there were as many as 1,500 rules within Pharisaic Judaism just for how you keep the Sabbath if you were a Jew. Now, the Pharisees told Israel that their rules were equal to the Scriptures, equal to God's Word. 
And in the process, with all of those extra rules laid on the shoulders of the people of Israel, they had turned what God intended as a day of rest into a day of burdens. Which is why at the end of chapter 11, we saw Jesus saying to Israel, Come to me to find rest. What he was saying is, leave the Pharisaic system of burdens and come to me and you'll find rest, more than just rest from your daily fight over their rules. You'll find rest for your soul, he said at the end of 11. But when Jesus said that, when he positioned himself before the crowds as an alternative to the Pharisaic system of Sabbath-keeping, he was putting himself on a collision course with those leaders. Now, it was bad enough that Jesus claimed to forgive sins and that he consorted with tax collectors and, and prostitutes. Okay, they could, they could deal with that. But now he was striking at the heart of Pharisaic Judaism when he put himself against them on the Sabbath. He was threatening their foundation of authority, their very power system, and the source of their wealth in that culture. So if Jesus was wanting to pick a fight with the religious leaders, he could not have chosen a better topic to do it on than the Sabbath. So in this chapter, Matthew is going to show us that. He wants you to see how Christ's opposition to the Pharisees' Sabbath rules contributed to his rejection and to his death. And he does that in this chapter by opening with a couple of scenes. We're going to study one of those scenes tonight. These are scenes in which Jesus contends with the religious leaders over the Sabbath. Now, if you've read through the Gospels, you know that the Sabbath comes up over and over and over again. It's their chief criticism of him. And in that, you get a sense of just how important this was to the Pharisees. The first round of this battle, as you want to call it that, is in chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. That's what we're studying tonight. Let me read verses 1 through 4 as we open tonight. Verse 1 in chapters 12, Matthew writes, Now at that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Let's pause there. Matthew sets the scene here by saying, at that time. Now what he means here, of course, is he's referring to the time of the events of chapter 11, when Jesus was in the city of the Galilee. This is what we've been studying, right? Back in chapter 11, Jesus condemned the cities of Capernaum and Bethesda and Chorazim. He said they didn't have belief, remember? That's the same time when he was confronting the crowds for their hard hearts. It's in this same moment, round about this same time, It's then that Jesus was also beginning to contend with the Pharisees over the Sabbath. And in the first incident that Matthew records here, you find him with his disciples walking through a grain field on the Sabbath. Now, the Jewish Sabbath, for anyone who may not know, is the day that begins on Friday at sundown and goes for 24 hours until sundown on Saturday. So if this happened on a Sabbath in the daytime, it's happening somewhere on a Saturday And the Galilee is a sparsely populated region in northern Israel, both then and still today, for the most part. So it's largely a farming region. You have a lot of rolling hills, a few mountains here and there. And on those hills, you have a lot of planting, a lot of farming going on. Grain fields are everywhere. Again, that was true then and still is today. So on this day, Jesus and his disciples pass through a field. And as they're passing through, we're told they get hungry. And so they want a snack. Now, you're walking through food. So... It's obvious where you go when you're hungry, you start to pick the heads of grain and eat them. Now, the Pharisees see this. Now, why are there Pharisees there? Right? Well, it's obvious, right? They're following Jesus. 
And why did they happen to follow him on the Sabbath? Well, because, friends, when you have 1,500-plus rules devoted to Sabbath-keeping and you're looking to accuse someone, that's the day. That's your best shot. So they set out to follow Jesus on the Sabbath, knowing that if they watch long enough, sure enough, they'll find something to accuse him of. And sure enough, they see this moment, this moment where they're plucking heads of grain and eating them. And so they say to Jesus, look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful. Now, in the law of Moses, in the Word of God, there is a specific accommodation for exactly this kind of behavior. In Deuteronomy 23, 24, you read this. God says, When you enter your neighbor's vineyard, then you may eat grapes until you are fully satisfied, but you shall not put any in your basket. When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. That's what the law says. And the idea here is very straightforward, obviously. A traveler was allowed to help himself to a few heads of grain or a few grapes in someone else's property without paying anyone. That was considered fair under their system. But that person could not go the next step and fill a basket or take a sickle and start mowing down the guy's field because they're hungry. That would be stealing, right? And it just makes perfect sense. But in this case, the Pharisees are not accusing them of stealing. They're not accusing them of taking too much grain. The issue here is the Sabbath. He says they're breaking the Sabbath. So... Among those 1,500 or so rules that the Pharisees had come up with about Sabbath-keeping included rules about plucking heads of grain. Yes. The Pharisees said that when a man plucked an individual grain... Now, if, if, you're not, if you've never done this, you need to get out of the city more. But if you've never done this, the grain, you know, the stock has these little fruit, basically, the seeds, all kind of out there where you can grab them, but they're covered in a husk and they've, you know, there's chaff on them, so you have to pluck it out and kind of rub all that stuff off, get down to the seed, then you put it in your mouth and you can eat wheat that way and, you know, satisfy your hunger for a little while. But the Pharisee said, when you do that, you're doing work. Now, how does that work? Well, they said, when a man plucks that individual grain off the stalk, that man has reaped. And reaping is work. They said, when he rubs the husk away, uh, he is winnowing. And winnowing is work. And if he puts that kernel of wheat that he's currently freed into his pocket, maybe for later, that's storing grain. That's work. All right? Now, if all of that thing sounds kind of ridiculous to you, like that, how does that equal breaking the Sabbath? Well, welcome to first century Pharisaic Judaism. There you go. That's how it worked. But it gets worse. The Pharisees would refuse to even walk in a field, and not just a grain field, they wouldn't even walk on grass. On the Sabbath day. You know why? Here's an explanation that Dr. Frickenbaum offers, I think is just really worth sharing. He says, if someone asked a rabbi, what's wrong with walking on grass on the Sabbath day? The answer would be, nothing. It is permissible to walk on the grass on the Sabbath day. However, there is a problem. What looks only like a grassy field might have one stalk of wheat growing somewhere in it. And if a person walking through the field of grass inadvertently stepped on that one stalk of wheat, they might separate the wheat from its stalk and they would be guilty of reaping on the Sabbath day. Furthermore, if his foot came down and twisted the wheat just enough to squeeze the wheat from the chaff, well, then he'd be guilty of threshing. And if he continued walking and the outer hem of his garment just happened to cause enough breeze to blow by to separate the wheat from the chaff, well, then that would be winnowing on the Sabbath day and he would be guilty. Finally, after that person had gone, a a bird or a rodent might see that exposed piece of wheat and swallow it, causing him to be guilty of storing the wheat on that day. Now, friends, that is a really good example of rabbinical logic at work. 
It starts with a command of God, thou shalt not work, or thou shalt rest. And then the rabbis take over. And seeking to appear wise in these matters, they identify what they call loopholes in the law, things that need to be closed by new rules so as to protect the worshiper from violating the law. And in the process, they create rules after rules after rules, closing all of these supposed loopholes. But of course, they always find new loopholes, so there's always more rules. And in time, what those men do is they stretch God's commandment beyond recognition to the point of ridiculousness, where if a rodent eats a piece of grain that you stepped on, somehow that equates to breaking the Sabbath. Remember what the Lord said when he gave Israel the Sabbath? This is what he said. Exodus 23, 12. Six days you are to do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor so that your ox and your donkey may rest, the son of your female slave as well as your stranger may refresh themselves. All right, that's it. The Lord said Sabbath rest for Israel was intended to give his people refreshment from their labors. They'd cease their strenuous labor. They'd enjoy a day of idleness and relaxation. Sounds like a good deal, doesn't it? Which tells us something about God's purpose. God's purpose in that law for Israel was to reduce burden in the lives of his people, not to add burden to their lives. Which means the Lord would not have wanted for his people to then create a whole bunch of new rules around that command, which only have the effect of causing more worry and burden over trivial things. That is working against the purpose that the Sabbath day had for Israel. But that's exactly what the Pharisees have done. That is, in a nutshell, Pharisaic Judaism. Burdens. So Christ responds to their charge when they say, hey, look what your disciples are doing. He responds with three arguments. In the first argument, which we've read, Jesus denies the legitimacy of their rules. And to do that, he uses Scripture to contradict them. And it's a very interesting way he does this. And it's not immediately apparent. We need to unfold it here a little bit. Now, the scripture that he refers to when he talks about, have you not heard of this of David? He talks about this moment in David's life. I want to go back to where that happens in 1 Samuel. Just read a brief passage so that you get a little better sense of what uh, Jesus is talking about here. It's in 1 Samuel 21. And it's just, I'm going to read six verses. Let's just read 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 6. This is the story that Jesus is referring to. It says, Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest, And Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has commissioned me with a matter and has said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you and with which I have commissioned you. And I have directed the young men to a certain place. Now therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. The priest answered David and said, Well, there's no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. David answered the priest and said to him, Surely women have been kept from us previously as when I set out, and the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was not an ordinary journey. How much more then today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him consecrated bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its presence when it was taken away. So here's the story we're learning here. David was... Not yet king at this point. Saul was, if you remember. And Saul became jealous of David at a point early on because of David's popularity and because of David's threat to the throne. Saul knew that Samuel had anointed David to replace him. And so at some point, Saul begins to take his 
his displeasure at David out on him, throwing spears at him and the like, and David has no choice but to flee. And this is now at the point where David is on the lamb. He's fled from Saul. He's got a few guys with him, and they're hungry. And he's looking for allies. Who do you go to to find someone who can feed you when you're not sure who's on your side and who's on Saul's side? Well, he figures the priest serving in the tabernacle would be on his side. So he goes to a place called Nob, which is where the tabernacle was located in that day, and he finds the priest, a guy named Ahimelech. And Ahimelech the priest says to David, well, I can give you some food, but the only food we have around here is the consecrated bread. Now, what he's referring to there is the bread that was set out in the tabernacle. It's called the show bread. It's what the law required be done by the priests. And as you may know, it's a picture of Jesus as the bread of life. And the law of Moses requires that once a week, the priests would take fresh bread, put it into the holy place, into the temple, into the tabernacle, and leave it there. And for one week period, one seven-day period, the bread just stays there. At the end of the week, it's done, time to move it out, and a new set of bread goes in. And the bread you've taken out, the law says, belongs to the priests. It's their portion, part of how they're compensated, if you will. And that's all found in Leviticus 24. So now David shows up and he says, I want food. And the priest says to David, all I got is this show bread. Now you can have it if you're ritually clean, which I think the priest added that condition for his own conscience. He didn't want to give it away to someone who wasn't clean, couldn't be before the Lord. Now at first glance, when you hear that story, you're thinking, sounds like the priest did, just did something he's not allowed to do. You know, it sounds like that's against the law, right? Those guys just broke the law. And it would seem as though that's what Jesus is saying when he cites the example, right? He's saying, if I can't do this... Well, then how come David was able to break the law? But wait a minute, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense, right? First of all, Jesus is not breaking any laws right now. So he doesn't need to point to someone else's breaking of a law, never mind the fact that two wrongs don't make a right anyway. None of that would make any sense, right? That's our first clue to know there's something else going on here. This isn't just what it seems. It's not Jesus saying David sinned and I can too. What is he saying? Well, first of all, If Ahimelech is offering David consecrated bread to eat, then that means this is not the bread that is in the tabernacle right now. Because no one can eat that bread. Ahimelech can't eat it. No priest can eat it. No one can eat it. It's got to stay there for a week. In fact, if you look at the very end of what we already read, what I read out of 1 Samuel, he says at the end, the priest gave him consecrated bread. Now notice what it adds. For there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence which was removed from before the Lord. In other words, this is the bread that was there the prior week. This is the bread that had already been taken out because it was due to be taken out. There was a new batch in the tabernacle. So the Ahimelech did not go in and rob the tabernacle and give the bread to David. He's talking about bread that had already been transferred to his authority. It was now his portion. It had been given to him, as was the requirement. And whatever the priest now had, he was free to do with whatever he wanted. It was his bread. There's no law against the priest giving the bread away. There's no law that says the priest had to eat it. The law was it had to be given to a priest. It was not right to be given away. Now, in the text I read out of Matthew... Jesus says, have you not heard or read in the, in the law or in the word where David, it says, did something that was unlawful? Do you catch that? It says in, go back to my text here from what I read. In Matthew 12, he says, have you not read what David did when he became hungry, how he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat? Now, wait a minute. That sounds like he's taking the bad bread again. What does it mean not lawful to eat? Well, here's the issue. 
Ahimelech and David did not break the law of Moses because the law does not prohibit a priest giving away the bread that has become his. But the Pharisees, they had a rule that said it was unlawful. One of those many, many rules that the Pharisees had come up with said that once a priest received their portion, they could not give it away. Now, that's not what God said. That's what the Pharisees were saying. And those same men just said to Jesus, why do your disciples do what is unlawful on the Sabbath? But you know what? They weren't doing something that was unlawful according to the law. They were doing something that the Pharisees considered unlawful. So Jesus turns around and says, well, what do you think about David? He did something that you consider unlawful also. Was David allowed to do unlawful things? You see what he's doing here? What Jesus is showing is that you break the Pharisees' laws, you don't break God's laws. They're not equivalent. David wasn't accused in the law at all. In fact, in the way that plays out in that transaction, there's no sense in, at all that Ahimelech is doing the wrong thing. In fact, he's so concerned about doing the right thing, he wants to make sure these men are clean first. The point is, Jesus is pointing out that Scripture and their little rule book are not equivalent. And he does that by showing how even their past heroes did things that now the Pharisees would say were wrong. Isn't that interesting how he played that on them? Now, you may remember I taught in past weeks here about how the Pharisees had claimed that their rules came from God. Remember how I told you that they did that? How they passed their rules off as if they were from God? They called it an oral law. If you've spent any time around Orthodox Jews, you might hear them refer to the oral law, and you wonder, well, what is that? Well, this is the story they'll tell you. That when Moses received the real law, the written law from God on stone tablets... They say that at that same time, God also gave Moses a bunch of additional rules that weren't written down. Moses just heard them. And then later, they were passed down from generation to generation within Israel orally. Until, thankfully, the Pharisees decided to write them down for us. And now they're written, and that work was called the Mishnah. So they claim that God gave Israel the Mishnah by virtue of it having been passed down orally since Moses. Now here's where Jesus' example uh, is such genius. If that had been a true story, if the myth of the oral law was true, well, Moses lived a long time before David. Therefore, David and Ahimelech would have known this so-called oral law if it actually existed. They too would have heard all of these rules in their day, and in which case they would have known it's wrong for the priest to give his bread away, and they wouldn't have done it. But the fact that they did give the bread away and didn't think it was a problem is proof that the oral law didn't exist in their day. In other words, it exposes the myth that said that the law, this oral law, came from God. There was no such thing. It was all nonsense. The Mishnah was invented, it was created long after Moses, it had no authority, and therefore the rules that the Pharisees were applying against picking grain on the Sabbath and blah, 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 was of no regard to Jesus, and certainly not something they could be convicted over. Friends, you know this whole idea, this myth that you can take rules and say you got it from God? This is the oldest trick in the book when it comes to false religion. If a person or a religious institution claims they have something from God that's not in the Bible, it's a lie. It's always a lie. And they say it, they tell you it's from God through some backdoor method, some other source, some other thing came, it's different, but it's still from God. They're telling you that to give it legitimacy. 
Obviously, that's why they say that. To make you stop challenging that authority and to accept it without thinking about it. But it's always a lie. And when you're confronted with that kind of nonsense, somebody trying to tell you that something's true that's not in this book, here's what you do. Exactly the same thing Jesus did. You go to the Bible. He went to Scripture, in a sense, because he was able to quote back what he knew from from 1 Samuel. We may have to read it. We may not know it by memory, but it's still there somewhere for us. Do your homework. And when you find truth in this book that contradicts what a person or some institution claims to have heard from God, then that is exposing that person or institution to be a fraud. A fraud. Not just a little wrong on that point, but a fraud. Because here's what they've told you. They've told you they've heard from God. If someone says they've heard from God, turns out they're lying, don't believe anything they say. Right? At that point, you don't need to. And you know what? If you feel like that's being harsh, all I'm saying is this. You have a lot of other sources. You don't need them. Safer to just set them aside and not go back to them anymore. You know, the old adage of a blind squirrel finds a nut once in a while, that doesn't mean you want blind squirrels, right? That doesn't... That doesn't endorse blindness. It just says once, you know, twice a day a, a broken clock is right. That doesn't mean you want broken clocks. And the fact that you may have a friend who's often wrong, but eh, once in a while she says something interesting, that's not good enough. That's not a source of truth. Knowing God's word inside and out is your best and only defense to nonsense like that. It's probably the single most important reason why you should make becoming a lifelong student of the Bible your goal. Dig in, understand it, cover to cover. That's what Jesus did. In other words, he knew it that well, of course. He authored it. But it's also the goal we should have in life following him. Knowing God's word is your defense against false gospels that deny grace and offer no comfort or assurance. And it's your defense against legalistic burdens that somebody drops on your shoulders to rob you from the freedom you have in Christ. And it's your defense against harmful and manipulative relationships, evil people who just try to exploit you for your money or your allegiance. This is your defense. And you are biblically ignorant at your own expense. The enemy has an unlimited number of lies at his disposal. But you've probably heard the old story about how we detect counterfeit money, right? We don't train the teller to recognize counterfeits because there's always a new one coming and you can't know them all. But what we ask that teller to do is to recognize what real money looks like and then they'll know a counterfeit every time they see it. That's an old analogy, but it's, I think, a good example. If the more you know this, the more you can spot the false stuff. It's just that simple. Uh, You've heard me say it before. I think the church has an epidemic of biblical illiteracy. Someone like me, for example, who happens to know something about the Bible, is seen as sort of a freak in the church, right? Send me off into a little corner with my Bible study and the rest of my freaks and leave us alone to do real church out here in the big room. Which is why I had to start my own church, because no one... No one would ever invite me anywhere. That's just a joke. But, but there's a certain degree of truth to that, right? I mean, I would argue that most of you are probably freaks to a lot of your friends. That is, if you care about a church that teaches the Bible at this level, they're like, man, I can't take that. 20 minutes and I'm already ready to jump up and leave. Well, you are too, but at least you hang on. <laughs> Listen to what the writer of the letter to Hebrews says in warning us about the problem of biblical illiteracy. He says in, in Hebrews 5.12, Though by now you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. 
And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. That's what the writer says is on the line. He describes a, a, a mature believer there, someone who is mature in their faith, as a, like a person moving from child's food, milk, to meat, to solid food. But he's saying this. He's saying if you subsist only on milk, you, you stay weak. And I think the analogy is, is intentional there. If, you know, if a child got past the age of two or three and they're still eating nothing but milk, at some point what used to be really good becomes deadly for them. They'll get anemic. They'll die. And the same is true in a sense for Christians. I don't mean to suggest by die that we cease being Christian. I don't mean that. What I'm saying, though, is in the context of an analogy like that, we're just weak. We're not maturing. We're not going where we're supposed to go. And he says those who are not accustomed to the meat of God's word, to to study it like we do, if you want to use that as an example. He says that's someone who remains a spiritual infant. And you know the problem with being a spiritual infant? He says you will not be able to discern good from evil. If you want one reason above all others for why the church collectively is so mired in sin and weakness and false teaching and depravity, I mean, why the world and the church look almost identical now in most places and and so on, why is that true? Because the church can't discern good from evil anymore. Why? Because no one's studying their Bible anymore. Why? Because no one's teaching their Bible anymore. And that's just, that's a negative loop, right? The more people like me don't teach the more people like you don't want it. There's an old saying, I've used it here before, right? There's a, there's a saying that the difference between eating food and eating the Word of God is an opposite tendency. If you eat a lot of food, you get full, you're not hungry anymore. But you eat the Word of God, you get hungrier, you want more. You stop eating food, you get hungry and you want it. You stop taking in the Word of God, you lose your appetite for it. And we have a church that's lost its appetite for the Word, generally. And as a result, we have a church that doesn't know the difference between good and bad, generally. So Christ's first response to these men against their accusations, saying he was violating the Sabbath, his answer to them was from Scripture proof that your Mishnah ain't my Bible. Your rules are not equal to God's rules. And David proves that men of God didn't follow your rules then, and I don't need to follow them now. And then you find a second point in verse 5, and already says, verse 5, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. He refers there to the temple. Now, the the temple was a a seven-day-a-week operation when it was standing in Israel. So that even on the Sabbath day, you still had priests at that building as they were supposed to, doing their work just like they did the other six days, even though it was a Sabbath. In fact, Sabbaths were actually busier than other days because Sabbaths came with extra sacrifices and extra rituals that weren't there the other six days. It was the busiest day of the week for a priest. Now, that's an example of an exception. God said, don't work. And then he also said, ah, but you guys, sorry, you're going to have to work on the Sabbath. And there were other exceptions to the Sabbath law. Circumcisions were required on the eighth day of a boy's life in Israel. And if the eighth day of that child's life fell on a Sabbath, so be it. He still got circumcised on that day, which meant somebody had to circumcise him, which was work. But it was a legal exception or a lawful way to ignore the Sabbath in that respect. And even the Pharisees in their little system of rules, they had exceptions 
for the Sabbath? I mean, for example, a midwife attending to a birth. You know, you really can't tell the woman who's about to give birth, sorry, it's a Saturday, can we do this tomorrow? He cites here the example of the priests simply to say that the Sabbath law served a higher purpose. And the purpose of the law was not simply prohibiting work. It, it, it wasn't as if God was glorified just in our idleness. That wasn't the point of it. The purpose of it was to relieve burdens. The purpose of it was to show God's people God's love through the, this opportunity for them to rest. That's the simple reason. There's a bigger one coming, but that's at least the basic reason, right? If somebody says, you can take a day off, you like that. And it's a, a moment of grace. So, in that sense, if the purpose of the law of the Sabbath was to relieve burdens and not to add burdens, then when the two came into conflict, when observing a Sabbath brought burden, like in the case of a midwife, rather than relieving burden, well then, what was the point again? Relieving burden. Do what relieves burden. That's the heart of the law. That's the spirit of the law. Do what relieves burden. Don't just follow the letter of the law and think that you've become more pious. So if the people of Israel lacked priests in the temple on the Sabbath day, they couldn't have got anything done. They couldn't have worshipped. They couldn't have done what they needed to do on that day. And that would have been a burden. And so in consideration of what is the least burden, God said, priests, you're going to work. And the same would be true, of course, for a, for a midwife. If, you, if you're in labor, it's more burden if you don't have someone attending to you on the day you need them. It's just that simple. It's the heart here that God cared about. And Jesus is pointing to that. He's pointing to the ultimate goal of the Sabbath, which is to promote rest and not burden. Oh, but wait a minute. Think about what the Pharisees were all about. If there was one way to sum up what the Pharisees were all about, it was burden. It was the whole point was burden. And, and trust me, if you had confronted a Pharisee in this, in this day and you had said to them, your rules just add burdens, they would have smiled at that. They would have said, I know, it's kind of cool, isn't it? That's exactly what their attitude was. Their attitude was that this burdensome rule-keeping lifestyle pleased God. You see this in other places today, just in a different sense. People who, who are in religions in which doing penance, doing some kind of trial and chore and oh this is how god makes i make god happy i do these for some of us it's just going to church oh i gotta go to church to make god happy today i gotta do this i gotta do that it's this attitude that says somehow god in heaven really gets pleased at seeing us miserable that is not the bible friends that is not god and that is not the bible that's their attitude though that's again that's false religion in a nutshell if following god feels like a burden to you and not joy you are doing it wrong you're doing it wrong. You ought to stop. You're not having fun. God's not pleased. What's the point? Stop. Let me say it this way. If attending church or saying your prayers or giving money or, or doing anything like that, if it causes you dread and resentment, that's your proof that you're trapped in some kind of false religion. Maybe one of your own making. Maybe something you've kind of laid on top of Christianity. Maybe something instead of Christianity. I don't know. But if that's how you feel about those activities, you are in a bad place. You're obeying rules and rituals rather than obeying God. Because Christ's burden, he said, is light and joyful. And there are a lot of people who associate God and religion with the feeling of shouldering burdens. They don't know the difference. 
And that's really who the, the Pharisees were. That, that is, these are people who only know rule-keeping, and so they think that the more burdens they bear, the more rules they keep, the more happy God is with them, and so when they want to get more pious and holy, they just take on some more rules. Have you ever lived with somebody like that, or been around somebody like that, or seen that? you ever felt that? Can I please take that off your shoulders right now? On the authority of the Word of God, that's not how you follow God? Just stop doing things that you are feeling burdened to do in the sense of, I'm pleasing God by my sacrifices. He wants compassion, not sacrifices, he says. Notice verse 7. Jesus said, had the Pharisees truly understood God's word, they would have known that. That he wants compassion, not sacrifice. That's actually a quote from Hosea 6, chapter 6, verse 6. This is what Hosea says. God speaking, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. My Bible version says loyalty, but that's, a, that's not a great translation. The Hebrew word there is chesed, and it's just the word for loving kindness or loyalty or, or faithfulness is probably the best word. What the Lord says is, I want hearts of faithfulness, of faith and obedience. I don't want you to make sacrifices for me. Because fundamentally, what a sacrifice accomplishes is it makes up for sin. Well, Christ has already made the one for all sacrifice that's necessary for your sin, you can't do better and you're not adding to him with all the little things you're doing on top of it. So don't make your response to God one of sacrificing. Make it one of faithfulness. And you please him. And what Jesus is saying to these men is, you should have known that. That is to say, these were men who were not in a relationship with God by faith, which is why they could not understand the Sabbath properly. That's why we always say, and you might, maybe you've heard people say this, true Christianity is not a pursuit of religion or of ritual or of rules. It's a pursuit of relationship. Relationship with God through our faith in Christ by his word. And if you are that kind of person, a person who knows Christ in faith and not someone who simply does religion, then you know that you cannot get fixated on the minutia of rules and regulations. When the rules and regulations overshadow the relationship, something's wrong. And the Word of God tells you what you need to do fundamentally, so you focus on it and what comes out of it naturally. Now, having said that, yes, there are rules in the Word of God, obviously. You know, do this, do that, not do that, yes. But you should know if you're a Christian that your relationship with God was not established by those rules, nor is it maintained by your rule-keeping. It was established by faith alone. That's the end of it. Those rules are not your means to pleasing God. Those rules are the consequence of you loving God. See the difference? Like your son or your daughter. If they keep the rules of your house, you're happy with them, yes. But if they fail to keep the rules of your house, do you say, oh, you're no longer my son today? Well, not if you're normal. No, that's not what we do, Right? Their rule-keeping has an impact on your relationship, but it does not have an impact on their identity. And that's how it is in the body of Christ. We are doing nothing for God to establish our relationship. We are doing nothing for God to maintain our relationship. And nothing you could do or fail to do will ever diminish God's love for you if you are in Christ Jesus. You are approved by the Father because He loves His Son, and you are in Him by faith. The Father's love for you is based in what Christ did. It's not based in what you do. And that's why you can't lose what you gain by faith by what you do. 
Right? They're, they're, they have no relationship on one another. Let me just put it plainly. You could choose never to pray. You could choose never to give a dime to God. You could choose never to come to church for months and God would still love you because of what Christ did on the cross. Now, the same can't be said of what I will think of you, but that's another story. But seriously, you understand, I'm not suggesting you do that. What I'm saying is your identity doesn't vary by how good you are on a given day and rules aren't a means to pleasing God. That's why Jesus says we don't have a burden. It's light. It's easy. That nonsense has been put aside. These men, they have no faith. What do you have when you don't have faith? All you have is ritual and rules. That's it. And for that reason, they missed the Sabbath's true purpose. Notice verse 6. Jesus said, something greater than the temple has come. Obviously, he means he is greater. He is the better thing than a stone building. And what he's saying is this. If God prioritized the temple and its operations above the Sabbath, so that the temple had to operate even on a Sabbath. It was more important than the Sabbath that the temple be operating. And now Jesus is here, and he's more important than the temple. Well, then God would prioritize Jesus over the Sabbath, if that were necessary. You know, Even today, you find Jews in, in Israel going to the Western Wall, which is the retaining wall of the Temple Mount, and they're praying there. Why? Well, it's the closest they can get to what used to be, where the Temple used to be, which used to have God's glory in it. Many, You know, you see the point, right? They're that enamored with the Temple. And Jesus is saying, I'm even greater than that. And faith in Messiah, ultimately, is the true fulfillment of the Sabbath. And that's what Jesus is alluding to. It leads us to our final point briefly, verse 8. For the Son of Man, he says is Lord of the Sabbath. He says he's Lord of the Sabbath. And more specifically, he says the Son of Man is, which is a messianic term, so we know he's talking about himself. The Messiah is greater than the Sabbath. Now, in a very simple sense, here's what Jesus just said. Jesus was saying that I'm God, and as such, I alone determine what is or is not a violation of my law. More importantly, you don't tell me whether I'm violating that law or not. I tell you. Let's get the relationship right here. That's the first thing he's saying. But it goes beyond that. He's speaking here of the ultimate purpose of the Sabbath law. Remember what I covered here two weeks ago in chapter 11 when I told you that the Sabbath day is just an object lesson in the law? Just like the rest of the law, it's an object lesson. It shows a picture of something that they could ultimately have fulfilled in Christ. Well, how does the Sabbath day picture Christ? Well, think of it this way. Jews work six days a week, rested for one. But that day of rest... It's pretty temporary, right? When you think about it, before long, the day's over, and then work starts again. Do you know today, even in civil society of Israel, they have one-day weekends? The normal routine in Israel is you work Sunday through Friday. The only day off there is Saturday. And that's how it's always been since God gave the Sabbath. So in that sense, what did the Sabbath do for Israel? It just reminded them, your work's never finished. And you probably know this feeling a little bit, don't you? You know, if you have to go to school five days a week or you have a job that's Monday through Friday, you know that feeling you get in the Sunday evening time frame where you're starting to feel that weekend end and you know what's coming the next day? It's like it kind of ruins the end of the weekend because you're already thinking about the pressures of Monday, right? All right, you just got the whole point of the Sabbath right there. Not that we have a Sabbath day, but what I'm saying is you get the whole point of why God gave it to Israel. That is, Sabbath in the form he gave in the law is temporary. And it, it served to remind you every week, man, work's always one day away. Work's always coming. It's like a job where there's no retirement. 
You know, there's never a time when you're going to stop working. So it's, if you take it into a spiritual context, you know, you pray, you attend church, you give your money, you volunteer, you keep all the rules that they tell you to keep, and you just keep doing that until you die. And if you're in a rule or ritual-based life, if that's what religion is to you, then you're never free from that. You know, you might do a good thing on a given day and you feel like, oh, God's happy with me today, but you still got to worry about tomorrow. And then tomorrow. What happens if you die on a bad day? I may not go to heaven. Right? That's the mentality of people who are trying to work their way to heaven. It's this feeling of endless work, no rest, no assurance. And even if you have a good day and you take a day off and it's a Sabbath to you, okay, but then there's Monday. Or for the Jew, Sunday. So for the person who's trying to work their way into heaven, every day of life feels like a Monday. No end, no rest, no weekend in sight. And even if you have a particularly good day, it's not the end. The Bible says no one can enter heaven by doing good works or any works at all. You can't get there by trying to be good. can't do there by trying hard. You will never be good enough to enter heaven, right? We all know this. That's the gospel. There is only one way to ever truly rest from doing good works in an attempt to get to heaven. There's only one way you finally enter into a rest that is truly permanent, that you retire from working your way to heaven. And that one way is Jesus, by faith alone. Only he was good enough to get in. We rest in his work done on our behalf. Remember what we read last week in Hebrews 4.3 when he says, those of us who have believed enter into God's rest. And Hebrews 4.10 says, the one who has entered into his rest has rested from his works as God did from his. So the Sabbath pictures putting your faith in the Messiah's work such that you never have to go back to work yourself. So you have a shadow that is a picture in the law of that idea in the form of a one-day rest, but it's a shadow. It's a fleeting little piece of the truth. Ultimately, the fulfillment of that is Jesus. When you have Jesus, you don't need the shadow anymore, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 or chapter 2. So here's my point to you this evening. If you are still thinking you have to do rules like a Sabbath because he wrote it to some group at some point in the past and you think you should do it too, you need to understand you did it when you believed in Christ. You can't do better than that. You are resting in his work. That's your Sabbath. The little one given to Israel was meant to picture the big one you now have. You don't need to go backwards. Now, if you want to take a day off, knock yourself out. Take five. I don't care. Take a whole week off. But you're not making yourself any more pleasing to God. You're not more holy because you take a day off. You're not more approved. You're not closer to God. He's not happier with you. He is happy with Christ, and that's why you're secure. That's what the gospel is, friends. The Pharisees condemned Jesus' disciples for failing to accept their burdens, even as they were failing to receive Christ's rest. Don't make that mistake. Don't make the mistake of trading relationship to get ritual back again. Enter God's rest by faith, and then live a life that's free of those burdens, and use the time you have to serve Him in joy. That's the Christian message. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise your name. We thank you for the mercy you've shown us in Christ. We thank you, Father, for the grace that he brings us. And we thank you, Father, for the rest. Father, when we do our works for you, let us do them out of a heart of gratitude and love for you and not out of a sense of obligation or burden. And when our works turn to burden, Father, free us from them. We pray this, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen.